This is the You Can Learn Chinese podcast, part of the Seneca Network from the China Project. For everyone who's trying to learn Chinese or reaching for the next level, you came to the right place. I'm your host, John Pasden, co-founder of Mandarin Companion, founder of All Set Learning, the Chinese Grammar Wiki, Sinosplice, and some other stuff. And I am joined today by my co-host, Jared Turner, co-founder of the Mandarin Companion Greater Reader Series, longtime resident of China, and with great power comes great electricity bills. This is it, our 100th podcast episode. We made it. John, you, you did great on that intro. I, finally, after 100 episodes, I, I figured I'd better let you do it once. Thanks, man. I, I knew I could do it. But hey, dude, you totally messed up your dad joke. You just glossed over it. What was it? Oh, wait, that was my dad joke? Yeah, you I missed it. Just tell us your dad somewhere joke. Else. That was your dad joke. Oh, well, you, you got to pick it. All right, whatever. You should have put yeah. a blank there. I know. Okay. Well, well, you're gonna have to slip it in at some point here. Well, anyway, hey, this is our 100th episode, so we thought we'd do something a little different for this 100th golden episode. Yeah. So we're not doing interviews the normal way. We don't have a uh, a third guest interviewee. That's right. We are going to treat all of you with a special interview with John and I, but separately. And we're not interviewing each other, so we've got some special interviewers who are going to interview us, and we thought that would be a, a, f- a fun thing because, you know, we talk about our stories here and there, but let's bring it together and uh, give you guys something a little special about us. Yeah, we enjoy doing this, so we hope you enjoy listening. And for the record, John, this has been going on for almost four years. To be exact, it's been 1,365 days since this first episode aired and the airing of this episode. So that's three years and nine months, roughly. Can you believe it? I cannot. In fact, in my interview, when I had to guess how long the podcast has been going on, I got it totally wrong, didn't I? Y- yeah, you did. You, it was bad. <laughs> I am in an alternate reality in COVID land over here. Time does not flow the normal way. Hey, but before we kick into these interviews, I, I got to say, hey, uh, I'd like to mention maybe a couple highlights along the way over these last nearly four years of podcasting. And I got to say, for me, uh, one way that this podcast really has changed me is uh, I, I got I to gotta be honest, John. Rewind six, seven years ago, I really kind of had in my mind like, hey, this there's the best way to learn Chinese doing this, right? And it's a common fallacy many of us can fall into. It's easy to do that. You know, the way that you learned is probably is like the best way. And if anything, uh, what I've really appreciated, it's been a big highlight for me, or I guess maybe a really big privilege is, is being an opportunity to interview so many interesting and wonderful people. Uh, over these last four years and get their stories. And if anything, that's really opened up my mind and perspective on like how different everybody's story is. Like no no one story is the same. And even for people who've really achieved high levels of Chinese, it's just it's just not the same. And I think that's what's uh, something I've really enjoyed along the way. Yeah, I definitely enjoy that aspect. But I think one of the things that this podcast has opened my eyes to really is... Um, the role of Chinese teachers, because we're, we're clear that every learner has a different style, different interests, you know, different things are going to work uh, better or worse for each person. But the way that the Chinese teacher integrates into everyone's studies, that's a really important factor. And what we've seen over the years, you know, doing this podcast and talking to Chinese teachers is that they totally support everything we're doing, like most Chinese teachers. They're not they're not opponents. We're working together here and they really like all these ideas that we're sharing, and it's come across, you know, whether it's about typing instead of handwriting, or whether it's about, you know, the traditional Chinese methods don't work for adult learners. 
And so um, I've really enjoyed seeing that thread and uh, hearing all the support from the Chinese teachers out there. I would say one other thing, John, that's really, I guess, I talk about this all the time on the podcast, but I think I just want to hit it straight on the head, is also this whole experience has underscored the importance of motivation, reason, having a purpose to, like, learn a language, and how important that is. And without it, you know, you're never going to get to a high level of Chinese or any language, really. Uh, Motivation, always important. That's right. That's right. Well, today we're going to start out with an interview with myself. And my interviewer is Kaiser Guo from the China Project. And he was on our podcast in episode number 43. He was also a a guest recently just talking about um, a political situation, right? That's right. And for for those of you who don't really know much about Kaiser, Kaiser's the man, isn't he? He's he's like, uh, he hosts the the Seneca podcast. He's like a a very, super well-read, in the know, very nuanced uh, view on China, foreign relations, geopolitical issues, all relating to China. Um, you could just sit there and listen to him for hours. And I have, you know, his podcast uh, uh, talking about all that stuff. So uh, Kaiser's very, very cool. My name is Jared Turner. I'm originally from Illinois, lived around a lot of places. Right now I'm living in Utah. I'm the host of the You Can Learn Chinese podcast, co founder of Manor Companion. And I've got my fingers on a lot of other business pies. Jared Turner is an anthropomorphized golden retriever who is an endless font of dad jokes. The story of his acquisition of Chinese is an inspiration to overly earnest dudes who want to learn Chinese all over the world. Stay with us. <laughs> Chick chicks and dudes. How are you, Jared? Hey, Kaiser. I'm doing so awesome. This is great to be here. Of course you are. You are Mr. Peanut Butter. You always are doing awesome. <laughs> I love editing you guys' show. I have to tell you, of all the things that I do at work, this is one of the things that I regard as like the most fun. And I just love how you guys care as much as I do about the sound quality of the show. You guys have invested in good mics and all that. But I think the most important thing is that listeners should appreciate my little touches, like making sure to hit the J in Jared Turner just (laughs) perfectly with that first drum hit in the intro music. You guys have great music. It's fun. It's such a good show, man. I appreciate that, Kaiser, and it's been fun working with you on this. We had you on the podcast, gosh, it's been like two years ago, but now we've been part of the Seneca Network for some while, and it's been fantastic. Yeah, yeah. We love you guys. We love the work that you do. And it's great, because I feel like you and John inhabit these very different personas, and somehow they work well together. Like, you are, like I said, that kind of exuberant, earnest, kind of cheeseball dad joke <laughs> master. You are a human golden retriever. And John, of course, you know, he's like the scholarly, erudite, straight man dude. Is this you guys really, is this natural or is this contrived? At the core, it is us. John does play a little bit more of the grizzled, jaded veteran, you know, if you will. <laughs> but that, that even underscores a, a little bit of a dynamic even in our relationship. I will say for the podcast, we do play up our personalities a little bit, but at the core, it's us. Yeah, no, I think that authenticity comes through, and it's amazing. We know a little bit about you, just snippets about your family and about your background, your cinnamon bun bakery. That's actually the first burning question that I have for you is, does working in a cinnamon bun bakery ruin the smell of cinnamon buns for you? (laughs) Well, I got to back up that whole story, Kaiser, because... I've mentioned this a few times here and there on the podcast, but not a lot of people are going to get that story. (laughs) That's true. So my wife and I, when we were living in Shanghai, this was back in 2012, if I believe. 
our whole life when we had lived in China was just like, let's put it exuberantly, adventure, one adventure to another. So we arrived in 2010, but in 2012, our situation was a little bit dire. Had a job at the time. I was working with some Chinese investors, but the job just kind of like, we were kind of done, if you know what I mean. I was wanting to actually start a Mandarin Companion at the time. And my wife had just gotten a job as a dental hygienist. She's a dental hygienist in America. Oh. And it all just fell through. Everything fell through. And I was looking for some other opportunities and some jobs. But right at that moment, we were down to something like our last 2,000 RMB. Ooh. And that does not go very far in China, right? Indeed not. Not in Shanghai especially. Yeah. At the time, we had three kids. And we're like, what are we going to do? I'm like, I have no idea. So what happens a few days later, there used to be this organization called Shanghai Mamas. And someone on one of their forums said, hey, where can I get cinnamon rolls here in Shanghai? And as a lack of better options, someone had recommended my wife's cooking blog. She had this cooking blog on like how to make foreign recipes using local ingredients in China. Mm -hmm. So someone recommended it. A bunch of the ladies had made them by the end of the day and said, hey, these are fantastic. And someone asked a magic question. They said, will you sell these? My wife, Heather, she was like, hey, someone wants me to sell my cinnamon rolls. And I'm like, well, let's try it. Let's just see what happens. I mean, <laughs> we could use a little something right now. You guys looked at each other and said, that's so crazy, it just might work. <laughs> Bingo. It took us a couple of days to kind of figure it out, like how are we actually going to do this? And this was pre-WeChat pay, pre-AliPay days. Taobao was just starting to really gain in popularity. We took out time to figure the pricing and how we're going to do it. So we said, all right. Here's the price. You can buy cinnamon rolls. You can email us here, blah, blah, blah. Like the first day, we had something like 11 orders come in. We thought we might have like one or two. And why that's not a crazy amount, really. For us at the time, we we're living in this little apartment, and it was like, how, what are we going to do? So my electric bike had gotten stolen. You know, that's like a great way to get around in China. Oh, no. That happens in China, yeah. I lost four. Especially if you're going to deliver something, you need an electric bike. Yeah, yeah. So he had some old one. He's like, hey, you can have this one. But it doesn't have a battery in it. So, boom, we had to drop 600 RMB right there. Then I was running out to the store getting the butter, and we had to get some trays and stuff. And we had to blow up out another eight or 900 RMB that night. And so, by the end of the night, we had spent most of the money that we had left at that point. But by the next day, we made, you know, over 1,000 RMB. And by the end of the week, we had come on top like, hey, we made some money. Like, we're surviving now. All right. <laughs> we were in a little kitchen in our apartment. But you know, we need to make more cinnamon rolls. And so finally I said, oh, wait, we could turn half of our living room into a bakery. We did. And bought a bigger oven. And we hired an IE to come work for us to help you know, do all this stuff. And then fast forward two years later, we opened a store in Shanghai. Well, I'm back here in the States now. So I've been away from the cinnamon roll business, especially since COVID hit. I haven't been back to Shanghai about 10 years. And I will say, Kaiser, I never tire of the smell. They're always fantastic. It smells like money now. <laughs> I will say this, though. You're in the bakery all day long. You know, you just don't really smell it because you just kind of get used to it. People walk in the bakery and they're like, oh, this is amazing. You know, this is great. But, man, I'm telling you, when you pull a pan of cinnamon rolls right out of the oven, oh, that smell, just it's good every time. Never gets yeah, old. Yeah, yeah. So the other great thing that you were known for, of course, is that you are the master of dad jokes. You start with two in every show and you manage to get one in there somewhere else every time. I'm always worried that somehow you're going to run out of dad jokes, but where do they all come from? They come from a variety of inspirational sources. But I mean, are you that guy? Are you the guy who cracks dad jokes to your kids? Not really. Like, my jokes are, are apparently actually funny. I will say, actually, 
my dad jokes at the beginning of the intro of the thing, I actually curate a lot of those from multiple sources. I would say Reddit's always a good source. Let's put it that way. Oh, they're pretty darn good, though. So I curate them, though, you know, and I adapt them sometimes a little bit. But it's also a little bit of a natural outcropping from all those memes I make. The funniest one that I ever remember was when you introduced John as saying his wife often begins conversations with, are you even listening to me? <laughs> <laughs> that was that was hysterical. That totally cracked me. That's me also. Right? <laughs> well, I think it's going to happen to all of us at one time or another. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's get back into you can learn Chinese, which is obviously what we're here to talk about. I have become completely persuaded by this idea that graded readers are the right way to learn Chinese. It seems to be really the kind of core of your pedagogical belief system that only by reading things that are basically age appropriate, that keep you at a comfortable reading level, do you actually instill a kind of confidence and keep things interesting so that people will you know, do it? And then it really does start to sink in. What are the origins of this idea? And how did you actually come to be a believer in this so that you guys launched Mandarin Companion? Well, that's a great question. You know, really, the core element of extensive reading is comprehensible input. Right. And so the guy who came with this whole hypothesis is Stephen Creation, a very, very famous guy involved in second language acquisition. His theory was really revolutionary at the time. And the idea is that we learn best at our level plus one. And so that debate has always been, though, what is plus one? Right. right. Extensive reading is kind of a natural outcrop of the comprehensible input theory specifically applied to reading. Extensive reading is definitely one of the most effective ways to learn a language. Obviously, it's not the only way. Really, the most effective things all revolve around comprehensible input. Right. In fact, the research is really showing that that plus one thing is, is really like two to five percent that you don't know. And when you started learning Chinese, how long into your journey was it before you discovered extensive reading? I was in China, I think, for two years before I discovered extensive reading. And at that point, I mean, my life in China was just really just trying to keep up. And, you know, I just we were just struggling many times to survive and just to make it in a big city there in Shanghai. And so I was always kind of straddling between the Chinese and the English environments, if you will. I had gotten a textbook and just started studying on my own. Before I went to China, I had gotten a program, I think it was called Fluence like a Rosetta Stone type thing where you... Yeah. And, you know, all those things, obviously, I, I've learned from all of that. I probably, at one point, I made a lot of progress just when I'd get up in the morning. I'd studied an hour before I went to work in a textbook. And then when I went to work, I just practiced. Yeah. I really started learning characters when I was using QQ at work because that's how a lot of the different coworkers, they all communicated. And a lot of them didn't really speak English. So I would start typing things in Chinese that I knew how to say. I'm like, oh, let's hope those are the characters. Send it out. <laughs> oh, looks like they understood. They were responding in Chinese. Let me translate that, you know, or look these up. But fast forward two years, because I really wasn't focusing all the time on learning. My studying was on and off. I was kind of broken Chinese. It really wasn't good. I mean, I never had that luxury of like saying, I'm just going to spend, you know, a semester or months just learning the language. But it wasn't until that point when I was working for these Chinese investors who I had mentioned earlier, we were starting some language learning programs and I had to interview some teachers and I interviewed this one English teacher from the UK and he'd been in teaching English in Asia for over 20 years. And he would just like, the whole time I interviewed him, he was just so excited to tell me about extensive reading, hmm. how effective it was. And we talked about how he was at the University of Bangkok and how they had done their own internal study and they found it was so much more effective than any of the traditional education they've been doing. And it really piqued my interest. I'm like, wow, it's very, very interesting. And so 
I spent the next three months researching everything I could about extensive reading. I mean, I literally read like 15 academic papers. I reached out to different experts in the field and just found people who had been involved with read stories. And after that, I'm like, wow, this is like the real deal. And then I said, well, hey, if it's as effective as it says it is, it should help me learn Chinese. At the time, there was only really one series of Chinese graded readers, Chinese Breeze. I still recommend them. I mentioned them on the podcast. And I read 10 of their books in three months. Oh, wow. And in that three-month period, my Chinese went from like broken phrases and everything to conversational. My coworkers at the time were like, Jared, what are you doing? Your Chinese is like getting so much better. I'm like, it's like improved so fast. I'm like, I don't know. I'm just like reading in Chinese. It's just working for me. And so that kind of created the genesis to well, my own personal experience with doing extensive reading, but also now, hey, to take a step further and let's create a series. Oh, fantastic. When does John Pasden, the man, the myth, the legend, enter the scene? When did you meet John? At the time, John had already had quite a presence in the Chinese language field. He'd been working for Chinese Pod at the time. And I met John on the bus one day. What? In Zhongshan Park, bus 96. Whoa. I got on the bus, and it was at the bus station, so it's waiting to leave. It's not just, you know, like a bus stop. Mm -hmm. And so I get on the bus, and there happens to be one seat left. And that seat happened to be next to the only other foreigner on the bus. You just don't see a lot of non-Chinese people on that bus. And so I'm like, wow, well, there's a foreigner guy. So I went and sat next to him. And this actually will play into like the whole personality thing. You'll catch that from the story here. So I sit down on the bus and, you know, John had been in China at that point for what, like 10 years, mm-hmm. you know, speaks amazing Chinese. He's already done his master's degree in Chinese linguistics and everything. And here I'm like this, you know, rosy eyed newcomer to China and I sitting on the bus next to him and he's got some headphones in and he just kind of, you know, hmm, gives me a nod, you know, and I'm like, oh, hey, how you doing? And he's like, you know, gives me the nod. So I said, hey, you know, where are you from? And he goes, huh? And I'm like, where are you, and where are you from? And he, and he pulls out his earphone. He's like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm from the States. Oh, yeah, me too. And he just puts his head, headphone back in. I'm like, what state? You know, and he's like, what? Well, uh, uh, what? He's like, oh, I, at Florida. I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, I'm from, you know, from Utah. Like, okay, great. How long have you been here? What? Takes his earphone out. He's like, how long have you been here? After a few questions of that, like that, he realized he wasn't going to get rid of me. And so we ended up chatting and started telling me what he's doing. At that point, he was just starting out his own personal company, All Set Learning. And he gave me his card. We were only writing about maybe 10 minutes together before we had to get off. But it turned out he lived in the apartment complex next to me. So I later on added him on LinkedIn. But, you know, strangely, he got off the bus like 20 stops from there just to escape you, right? It's something (laughs) like that. He's like, thank goodness. Get this guy off my back, right? So I had him on LinkedIn. And then it wasn't later until I had the idea saying, hey, actually, my wife had said, maybe you should start your own series of creative readers. And I'm kind of an entrepreneurial guy. And so I said, hey, you know, maybe John would be the great guy to partner up with this. And I'll say, hey, John, I got this idea or something about language learning. I'd love to chat with you sometime. Like, oh, yeah, that's interesting. You know, uh, you know, maybe sometime in the future type of thing. You know, and I replied, I'm like, well, you know, do you have some time to talk next week? And he's like, oh, I'm really busy. You know, wow. (laughs) So this went on back. And finally, (laughs) I knew he lived in the apartment complex next to me. And he told me he walks to work because he got in a new office or something. So then you ambushed him. Exactly. I said, look, I will walk with you to work. One morning. My God. To pitch you this idea. Now I completely believe the whole sort of personas thing is not contrived in the least. This is <laughs> this is really truly you guys. Yeah. It's it's us. That's hysterical. 
Well, had he had experience with extensive reading before? You know, not exactly. He was familiar with Stephen Creation and all the mm-hmm. comprehensible input hypothesis. In, in the whole academic sphere, at least from the best of my knowledge, is that in language learning, people in general agree comprehensible input is best. But the disagreement is on what is that plus one, all right? The guys in the whole academic area of extensive reading are the ones who've really put a real fine point on that plus one is best if it's only like 2%. Okay? Ah, right. So there are some people adding 5 and 10%, 50%. And so at the time, John was actually working on some of his own, like a little bit like a comic book, if you will. It was kind of like a picture book reader. He had created some character and stuff. But after we started working on this and we talked a little more about it, he was kind of like, oh, you know, John, John will probably, you know, he'll, he'll, he'll dispute a few of my accounts on this, but it really wasn't the best leveled material. And so when we started really getting to, into trying to make graded readers, he really worked on creating very rigorous standards for the books and for the whole way that we went about things. You guys sound like you're really complimentary, though. You make a really good team. When did you get the idea to start this podcast, though? Gosh, it's been just over four years ago now. So mm-hmm. right now, this is being recorded here in October of 2022. And really, it was about the summer of 2018. I started thinking about a podcast. I'm like, you know, that might actually be a good idea. I was just reading about podcasts. I'd listen to podcasts. And I thought, you know, we could do something. And so I talked to John about it. And I'd already moved back to the States. And I said, John, I think, you know, we could do something like this. And obviously, it's great because it helps promote Manor Companion. But in reality... John and I really care about language learners. Yeah, yeah, that shows. And we said, you know, okay, definitely it's got to help promote our business. But I said, really, I think we could do a lot to help people in the area of language learning. I mentioned this on a reply to a Reddit post recently. Someone was talking about, hey, I did comprehensible input for Chinese learning, and it's, it's helped me so much. And I said, thanks for sharing your story. I think a lot of people will read that story, and they'll agree with you. And they say, yeah, there's a great way to go about it but then they don't know how to go about it. Right. And then they just go back to doing whatever they're doing. I'm sure you've had this experience too, where you know people say, yeah, there's this Chinese learning podcast. Well, not exactly. So I couldn't use that to learn Chinese. Well, no. <laughs> and then I have to explain what it is. And it isn't immediately intuitive to a lot of people. It's not. How do you describe it to people when they ask? What is You Can Learn Chinese all about? So we're not a podcast to teach you Chinese. We're there to help you figure out what are the best ways for you to learn. You know, we're not your teachers. We're like your consultants. I see. So we, we talk about strategies and ideas on how to get the most out of your learning activities. There's also this encouragement. It's great. I mean, I feel like it's sort of this moral support. And you feel like you become part of this community of people who are all involved in learning. We all love it. Well, thanks. Thanks so much, Kaiser. I've been, you know, learning Chinese for a long, long time, but I still find new strategies and new approaches and encouragement, genuine encouragement from it, even me. Well, I appreciate that, Kaiser. You know, and the encouragement thing is actually something that when we first even talked, the very genesis of the idea of this podcast is that we want to give people that encouragement. I mean, look at the name of the titles. You can learn Chinese because you've talked to people and they say, oh, I could never learn Chinese. Right. right, 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 right. Now, but if you said the same thing about Spanish, they might say, oh, I just don't want to just maybe be too hard, right? And then probably out there people might say, oh, I can't learn Spanish, right? But in general, 
Chinese almost has this mystique about it. Sure. And sure. it has this aloofness just with the writing system. I described Chinese characters can look like spooky animals and <laughs> it scares people off. And so we want to let you know that it's possible to learn the language. And that's a big part of having interviews on the show is that saying, yeah, it's learnable. Look, these people did it. So, Jared, you've been away from China now for four years, away from Shanghai. You had quite a series of adventures while you were living there. You've got five kids, and I think two of them were born in China and actually were born at home, right? That's right. Oh, my God. Tell me about that. We had two kids there in China, and we had our third one. Okay, that was our first one we had in China. It was our daughter, Ella, my wife. She had gone to the hospitals, gone to the doctors and everything, and levels of standards in Chinese hospitals and, you know, those sure. international hospitals there and everything. We largely used the local hospital and services because we were self-funded, if you will, there in right. China. We weren't under any uh, lot of benefits or anything there. And the Chinese medical system, wow, I kind of describe it like the cattle call. You know, you got those 10 people lined up out front of the doctor's office and they'll actually walk in while they're actually consulting with someone. Crazy stuff, right? But we went to the hospital, got everything set up. And that's one of the crazy things about China is that once you get pregnant, you better go right away to the hospital and essentially book your quote-unquote pregnancy, okay? Because if you wait too long, like if you go past like four or five months and you haven't actually kind of reserved a spot, if you will, with the doctor in the hospital, you may be out of luck. So we had actually gone a little bit late. We had some sort of guanxi relation to get some sort of connection. But when we actually got in there to the hospital and everything, my wife's like, man, I do not want to have the baby here, you know? And we looked at maybe some other options. We just didn't have any. And then she's like, well, what if we had it at home? And I'm like, Okay, that's, I'm totally fine with that. You know, that'd be great. I, yeah, let's do let's let's do it. I'm totally supportive. It's hard. I'd already had two kids at the point. You know, been through two pregnancies, two births, and then I'm like, I guess I could deliver the baby. And make a long story short, we did that. But essentially, what you have to do in China if you're having a baby at home, you actually don't tell anyone. Right, right, right. <laughs> the way things are, especially in large cities and even medium or small cities, is that only hospitals can issue birth certificates. We set up at the hospital. We actually gave them a little, said our due date was, you know, a little bit later so they didn't try to pressure us to have the baby early or something. And then what we ended up doing is we prepared everything. I did a lot of research. I had a friend who was a nurse in labor and delivery for many years. I had a friend who was a doctor, things like that. Just talked to, went through, watched videos, got myself prepared, prepared all the supplies. We had the baby at home. And then afterwards, we went to the hospital and said, oops. It just came too fast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What are they going to do? They're going to say, oh, no, put that thing back where it came from or so help me. No. So we had the baby at home, got it on video. It was great. We actually had a couple friends there just to help and support. And then after about an hour and a half, we was like, well, we better go to the hospital. So we went to the hospital. And so when we got there, I mean, the nurses were freaking out. They're like, oh, my gosh, you had the baby. Oh, my God. Oh, the other. They're like zero to crazy in just a matter of seconds. So I had to fill out all this paperwork and everything. They carted her off and checked the baby out, checked her out, and, you know, everything was good. And so I'm taking care of paperwork. And so I finally get to go into the hospital, and they had her in a bed, and there was a room that had, like, eight other mothers who just had babies. And she just looked so peaceful. I, it was just one of those times, you know, I love my wife, but at that moment, she just looked, like, angelic. Mm-hmm. She just had that, that glow, the new mother glow, and this little newborn baby by her side. And it just touched my heart. I'm like, I've got this mental image of it. It's just beautiful. And I said, how are you doing? She's like, good. I'm like, how's our little girl here? And she's like, she's good. I'm like, do you need anything? No. I'm like, do you want to stay here? No. I'm like, do you want to go home? Yeah. And so I said, okay, let me go see what I can do. 
So I went and talked to the nurses. And mind you, at this point, my Chinese was much more conversational, but now I'm dealing with like medical terminology and some things like labor and things. I learned some words about it, but I just was largely not sure what to say and how to <laughs> communicate some of these things. So I was telling her, I'm like, jia. and finally we're communicating. There's some broken English on their part. Finally, they realized well, we want to go home. And then they said, well, well you can't go home now. You know, you just had the baby. I'm like, I know, I know, we just had the baby, but everything's fine. I said, oh, well, well, you have to wait at least two hours after the baby's been born before you can actually leave. And I said, I know, we've only been here like an hour, but we had the baby four hours ago. And they're like, oh, let me go talk to the doctor. So they come back and they said, all right, doctor said you need to sign here. I'm like, I'll sign anything. I'll sign it, we'll leave, okay. Says, okay, sign here, 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 and then you have to write something here. And they kept saying, like, what, what do you mean? She's like, broken in English. She said, you need to give us a reason why you want to go home. And so I wrote in my terrible Chinese, 我要回家, and in my terrible handwriting, so I want to go home. That's what I wrote. And the, all the nurses started laughing. They looked at it, and they said, okay. So we've got our stuff, and we went home that night, and we slept. So that was our story, our first one. And the second one, we had it at home. It was a little bit different experience, a little more experience now delivering a second baby, but we had him, little guy Alex. That's fantastic. Wow, what a story. So, Jared, I was saying earlier that I was worried that you would run out of dad jokes. But the other thing that worries me, I mean, now that I know you have an inexhaustible supply, is topics. (laughs) I mean, you've got as many fresh topics as you do new dad jokes. Do you ever worry that you've covered everything? You've covered everything there is to think about in terms of approaches to learning Chinese, pitfalls or pointers or whatever it is that you do. How do you guys keep coming up with new stuff? I mean, you always surprise me every week. It's great. Oh, I appreciate that, Kaiser. John, he actually takes most of the responsibility for new topics, but definitely it's a collaborative process. Mm. I think what it is, is, you know, any educational topic, there's always some aspect to delve into. And just like, you know, Kaiser with your podcast, right? They're going to say, how much more could you say about China, right? But things are always developing, right? <laughs> well, that is a truly inexhaustible <laughs> one. I mean, it gets worse every week, right? So That's so true. That's so true. One thing I love about language learning, that at the end of the day, you're actually trying to learn to speak and communicate, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And it seems like so simple. Hey, just say the words. Oh, get no. Get that idea yeah. in your head and speak <laughs> it, right? But the whole kit and caboodle together, what it takes to get to that point can be so complex and deep. In that same respect, there is an inexhaustible supply of elements and things to discuss. When you even pick a topic, we may hit it from one angle, but later on we say, oh, you know, we didn't talk about this aspect or you come at it from a Tyler different angle. So it's almost like from the top down and then sometimes you hit it from the side and then over here and then mission these two things together and come up with something new. So it's kind of a fun thing and we definitely enjoy it. Yeah. Well, I enjoy it too. And bless you guys. I mean, you guys are doing God's work. I mean, you're really helping so many people with something that's so important and really putting your all into it. And it really shows. And we love having you as part of the network. We love the work that you guys are doing Keep at it. Just keep up the great work. We love working with you. Well, I appreciate that, Kaiser. All right, and there we have it, Jared's story. You you knew he was going to tell the bus story yet again. Oh, can't get away from that one, John. I cannot, just like I couldn't get away from Jared on that bus. It was fate. Okay, so now it's my turn, and I get interviewed by Jeremy Goldcorn, who's someone I've known for a very long time. We met in Beijing way back, but I don't want to say too much because I think he makes all that clear in the in the interview itself, so let's do it. Yeah, John, let's do it. And I'm ready to hear your side of the story of how we met. 
John, I am very excited to do this interview. You are one of my oldest internet friends in China. I think the first time we met was, it must have been when, 2005 or so, in Beijing, in a Hutong, in Nanlo Guxiang, with a bunch of bloggers. And this was when there were about 10 people blogging in English from China. Do you remember that meeting? Oh, I remember. Yeah, that was the first time we met. And I had some friends in Beijing. And I visited with my wife. She was not quite my wife then. And yeah, I had a real good time talking to you and beating all those guys. That was a great game. It was like Brendan O'Kane. Who else was there? Richard Berger, Joel Martinson, who he and I did Dunway together for many, many years. That was a, a really fun time. Dave Lancashire. Yeah, yeah, that was a good time. Dave Lancashire, who went on to found Pop-Up Chinese, which is where the Cynical podcast originally got going in David Lancashire's dirty old Beijing apartment studio. Oh, yeah. So, John, we have some history, but why don't you tell me how you started Steiner Splice? Because if you were not the very first English language blog written from China, you were certainly one of the first two or three. And I think from those days, you're the only one still going. So tell me how you started Sino Splice. Okay, so I came to China in 2000 and, you know, I was fresh out of college. I was just going to teach some English, learn some Chinese and I wanted to share my experiences with my family back home. And I started out doing that by email. But it just got a little cumbersome. And I don't know, email is boring, right? Blogging was new. I had a friend who encouraged me to give it a try. And pretty soon I was just writing regular blog posts. And I just had to think of a domain name. And I just came up with Sinosplice and just been doing it ever since. I seem to remember the explanation was that you were trying to sort of splice East and West or an idea of cultural fusion in the name. Splice my life into China, something like that. Yeah, I don't know. It's kind of a silly name, but I thought it was fun and I've been using it. Well, it's great. And congratulations on keeping it going. That is the sign of a true master of the internet. <laughs> That's funny that you're saying that because I actually haven't blogged for quite a few weeks now. Well, maybe this will be inspiration. Maybe it will, yeah. It's not dead yet, but uh, it's maybe a little less frequent than it used to be. You know, I was just looking at some notes that Jared sent me, and he said I should introduce myself because not all of your listeners will know me. I was, in fact, a guest on your episode number 41, How to Use Translation to Learn Chinese. So I lived in China from 1995 till 2015, mostly working on the internet, blogging originally, basically, but also print magazines and internet companies. And I'm now the editor-in-chief of The China Project, which is the host of this podcast. And thanks so much to you and Jared for letting me do this interview. This is a lot of fun for me. So Sinus Splice, we've gone into the origin story. Why are you still doing it? <laughs> I mean, it's partly a habit and a hobby. In the beginning, it was just kind of chronicling my studies and my exploration of China. It became more of like a cultural thing at some points. Back in the day, I did my master's in applied linguistics at East China Normal University. I did it in Chinese. And then that led to getting a job at Chinese Pod. I don't know if it still exists, but it's a Chinese language learning platform that was podcast-based initially, right? Yeah, it still exists. Yeah, I was there for six or seven years. I was the academic director and one of the main hosts, and so I oversaw the lesson development there for quite a good run. And that was when I really got my foot in the door for the Chinese language instruction and had a lot of good times and a lot of experimentation and created a lot of audio lessons at Chinese Pod. I remember many of them. They were very good. Well, thank you. So we've talked about Sinosplice and Chinese Pod, but then you set out on your own with All Set Learning. Tell me about All Set Learning. What does it do? 
Okay, so when I was at Chinese Pod, I was overseeing a lot of audio lesson creation, and that was cool because lots of people were listening to our lessons. But I wanted to have more contact with the individual learner and just learn more about the challenges and also the fun parts of learning Chinese. So I felt like I couldn't do that without a lot of direct interaction with learners. And so All Set Learning, from the beginning, it was a consultancy focused on one-on-one personalized Chinese learning. So way back in the day, like 2010 when it started, all of our clients were based in Shanghai and they were all doing one-on-one face-to-face lessons in Shanghai. And so I had lots of experience working with these people and they all had different situations, different reasons for learning Chinese, different Chinese levels, different goals. And so I started from one client and built it up. But over the years, we started also doing a lot more content. So you may have heard of the Chinese Grammar Wiki. That's probably our most famous resource for learning Chinese. And to personalize something, you need to be able to pull from lots of different sources, you know, to personalize someone's learning. And so the Grammar Wiki was designed to be a modular resource. So I got really into that, like creating materials that could be useful for lots of people, but it wasn't like a textbook where you're supposed to start from the beginning and finish it to the end. And you're still doing all set learning. Yeah, so all set learning is still going, but we're doing a lot more online now. COVID gave us a little shove in that direction. We were still more offline than online before 2020, but now we're definitely way more online. Because your customer base used to be in Shanghai, basically. Going online, has that opened up a global market to you? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, the global market was always there, kind of waiting, but we had a nice, comfortable client base here in Shanghai. With recent events, there are not nearly as many foreigners in Shanghai, and they're not arriving anymore. So definitely it was the time to start exploring the global market a lot more. How has that been? Because obviously with the tensions between China and the West and the United States in particular, compounded by COVID-19, there is perhaps a lot less interest in China on the part of Americans and other Westerners. Certainly I've seen anecdotes and a little bit of data from universities in the UK and the USA, which suggests that the number of students trying to learn Chinese at universities is going down. Are you noticing that? Oh yeah, that's real. The numbers are not what they used to be. And that's definitely a bummer because we were growing pretty nicely for quite a while. But I do believe that this is a bump We will recover, and I think that learning Chinese is super important, and I enjoy helping people learn Chinese, so I'm sticking with it. Yeah, of course, I mean, things could bounce back for a number of reasons. I mean, there have been, at least in the United States, periods of intense interest in the study of Arabic and of Russian because of enemies, real or perceived, in cold or hot wars. So people could start learning Chinese because, you know, they want to become spies. So you never know where your next customer base will come from. So I don't mean to be a downer. And if you look at the example of Japanese, you know, Japan had this huge economic rise. Lots of people were interested in it. And then it kind of had a bit of an economic tumble and then people kind of lost interest. But, you know, China, it's going to be at the top right next to the other world powers for quite a while, it's looking like. So I don't think that interest is going to fade. Absolutely. Whatever happens, good or bad, China is a hugely important country and culture that needs to be understood. The demand isn't going to disappear. Absolutely. You were doing all set learning and then you started doing Mandarin Companion. Talk a little bit about Mandarin Companion. At all set learning, I was working on personalized studies for clients. And so I had developed these tools to help analyze all different kinds of learning resources. So corpus analysis type stuff statistical analysis of characters and you know all that fun stuff 
I had these tools that I was using for individuals. And when I met Jared by chance on a bus, he had this idea of creating more interesting graded readers in Chinese. And at the time, I wasn't that interested because I had a lot of stuff going on. I had other projects. And I didn't really know him that well, actually. He was just this guy that liked to talk on the bus, you know. Let me slow you down right there, actually, because I know that Kaiser talked to Jared (laughs) about how you met on that bus that fateful day. But it's always good to hear the other side of, you know, a couple's story. So tell me about meeting Jared on the bus. All right. So I remember I was riding a bus 96 to where my office used to be. And I was kind of in the habit of just getting on the bus, finding a seat, because I was at the first stop. I always have a seat putting in my earphones and just kind of going into my morning zone. I'm not a morning person. And so this one day, this other foreigner sits down next to me and he starts making polite conversation. And I was just kind of mumbling one word answers and nodding and stuff, but he wouldn't stop talking to me. So eventually I gave up and I started talking to him. Man, if I was you, I would have gotten off the bus, but (laughs) you're a nicer man than I am. (laughs) Yeah, it was my morning time, man. That was my morning peace time. He robbed me of it. (laughs) But yeah, we had a good conversation and I realized he wasn't a bad guy. So fortunately, that led to further meetings and conversations. And eventually, Jared insisted on walking with me to work one day and We had a much longer conversation about the possibility of Chinese graded readers because, you know, he had read the Chinese Breeze series and I had read it too. I I knew about it. I wasn't that excited about it. But after talking to him some more, I realized that there was actually some cool potential and it was something we could definitely do. And so the idea of it is kind of easy Chinese. It's like slow news on the radio, except in text. Right. So it has to be easy, but it also has to be interesting And it has to be easy in a way that helps you build your fluency rather than just fragments of sentences. It has to be carefully constructed and well-designed, and the story has to be well-crafted. It is pretty tricky, but it turns out we did have all the right ingredients. And this is, in some ways, a job of editing, right, is what you're doing. Where do you get the original stories from? And then is the main task actually editing an existing text, or how does it work? Okay, so this is where Mandarin Companion is a little different from some of the other graded readers. And this is one thing that I've noticed, which is a little bit of a pet peeve of mine, which is when people from the West or whatever, they want to study Chinese, a lot of times there's this assumption that they're really interested in traditional Chinese culture, whether it's classical Chinese or tea or Peking opera or whatever. And actually, I'm not that interested in that. And I know a lot of the people I know and a lot of my clients that also learning, they're not interested in that. They're interested in Chinese people. They're interested in modern China. Yeah. They're not necessarily interested in all that traditional stuff. And it's kind of annoying that a lot of the Chinese graded readers that existed at that time were very similar to what a traditional Chinese family might give a kid. And it's not necessarily the kind of thing that appeals to an adult Western learner. Like a 25-year-old American really is not interested in peaking opera, but tell them about a rock band or a film. Yeah, exactly. Something that is part of the exciting culture that maybe attracted them about China in the first place, not just the fairy tale, you know, oriental, mystical China. Yeah, yeah. The real China, right? So your peeve with many of the other graded readers is that the subject matter itself is boring to a lot of learners and you wanted to do something different. Yeah, and it's not that they were terrible at telling stories or whatever. It was just kind of a cultural tendency and kind of an assumption about a Western audience. 
What I wanted to do, and Jared agreed with this as well, is to tell stories which were adaptations of Western stories. They were public domain works, so there were no IP issues, but the important thing was that they were actually good stories and they were well known. And then rather than translating them, we would retell the stories as simple as we wanted and use Chinese locations, Chinese character names, and make it Chinese using Chinese writers too, by the way, the writers of the books are Chinese as well. So we know we're building on something that Westerners can get behind, but it's not super traditionally Chinese. And at the same time, because it's not coming from like hundreds of years ago, you don't have all this like weird vocabulary about the emperor and, you know. You're using vocabulary that someone uses in urban China today. Yeah, if you look at just a typical story from, you know, 200 years ago, like whether it's Dickens or whatever, it's a lot of like pretty simple vocabulary. It's not all this archaic stuff, right? And so because the vocabulary is simpler, it's more basic vocabulary, and it's not so hard to actually tell the story with simple Chinese. Right, that makes a lot of sense. So now you have all set learning. So you're teaching people Chinese in the flesh and now increasing online. You have Mandarin Companion, and then you have Sinosplice. So the fourth piece of the John Pazden Empire is <laughs> the You Can Learn Chinese podcast. Tell me about You Can Learn Chinese. Why did you start it and what's fun about it? Well, I remember when Jared first brought up the idea of maybe doing a podcast with Mandarin Companion, I was like, oh man, do you know how many podcasts I recorded at Chinese Pod? Like literally over a thousand. That was cool and all, but I don't know. I kind of felt like I had my fill of podcasts. So we talked about it for a while, and I realized that it would be kind of cool to do a podcast which was more inspirational and encouraging to learners of Chinese without doing all the teaching. Obviously, the name ties into that. And it is a challenge to have a podcast that is not just for beginners or just for intermediate learners, and it can be useful for lots of different levels. And it's also still kind of interesting and relevant even after 100 episodes. But it's a fun challenge, and it's something that Jared and I have enjoyed doing. And it's already been, man, 100 episodes in like two and a half years. Which is the occasion for this interview, right? 100 episodes. That's amazing. It is. So, I mean, you're really a media addict, just like me. But more cunningly than me, you find a less painful way of doing media, by which I mean you're not doing news. <laughs> you're doing something that everybody should have fun doing, which is learning languages. Yeah, and I don't even have to wear a hard hat to do it, right? Yeah. <laughs> John is referring to a show I used to do. I was one of the original YouTubers in 2006, my old blog, Dunway. We started a video channel and I used to do this hard hat show where I'd go around interviewing people on the street mostly in Beijing and other places around China. Back in the golden days of the Chinese internet when it seemed like everything was possible. Oh, yeah. And a foreigner could just go around doing independent journalism without being interfered with. But that's enough about me because this show is actually about you. So you have been involved in language learning for 22 years, more than two decades that you've been in China. What's the most surprising thing you've learned about people learning Chinese over the years? I think it probably relates to motivation because, I don't know, you think that if someone comes to China, they're an adult learner, so no one's making them learn Chinese, they're not a kid, they must be really motivated to learn Chinese, but I often meet people that aren't sure about their motivation or their motivation comes from weird places like guilt, like I've been in China for five years and I haven't really learned much, so now I really need to learn because I'm guilty 
I feel guilty of not learning Chinese. And maybe it's like that for every language, but this kind of surprised me. Another thing that's really strange about motivation is sometimes you have someone who they think they want to learn Chinese. They start learning it, and then they lose their motivation and stop. And then they instantly blame themselves. But a lot of times they were just studying something really boring in a super traditional way. And they never even realize that. They just think, oh, I guess I'm not interested in Chinese after all. People's relationship to their motivation and their lack of awareness. I know it's not easy, but that can often surprise me. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's a bit like going to the gym, you know. Gyms make their money mostly by people signing up and paying and then not actually going. And people do a lot of things that they think are good for them and they don't end up doing them properly because their motivation is just guilt, not true interest. Right. It sounds like your theory of language learning is, if I could boil it down to one thing, is in fact that you have to get the learner interested. And to do that, you have to make the experience fun and relevant. Would that be a good distillation of the way you think about it? That's not the only way to do it. So I have a lot of respect for teachers that have to teach kids and the kids aren't really self-motivated. But I like doing it my way because I can work with motivated individuals who are really into it and we can both really enjoy the process and you know they can have great fun lessons with their teachers studying exactly what they want to learn. It's a very enjoyable experience. So I definitely like to do it this way. So that leads me to the question, you sort of hinted at it, but you don't really do children's language learning. Your focus is on adults, right? I've definitely been very interested in how my kids learn Chinese in China as bilingual native speakers, but I have not really spent much time helping kids learn Chinese now. Right. It's a shame because I need online Chinese lessons for my kids. <laughs> so. Oh, sorry. That's why you wanted to host this episode. That Yeah, I have an Altera motive. So tell me about your kids. How old are they? Seven and ten. And they're going to what kind of school in Shanghai? So they were going to a private local school, so all in Chinese. But they just started this year going to an international school that's in English. And so they still have Chinese class, but their other classes are in English. Are they having very strict sort of character writing lessons? Man, it's funny. When they go to this new school, they both love it because they have much less homework. That's the big thing, much less homework. But the one class that gives a lot of homework still is Chinese class. <laughs> yeah, I suppose. I mean, you have to. There's not really any shortcut to learning to read or write Chinese, is there? It's just... Oh, we actually have a past episode about this, Jeremy. Because the thing is... If you're not really going to be writing Chinese a lot in your future, and a lot of us are not, let's be honest, you might not really have to write Chinese, you know, over and over and over again for years, like Chinese kids are still learning to do today. Right. You know, computers make it very easy. I never had formal Chinese language instruction, and I learned to write using a computer. I can't write with a pen, but who writes with a pen these days? Exactly. Yeah. But Chinese kids sure do, I'll tell you that. That's true. But, you know, once they grow up or once they get a phone, that stops too. So the writing is not essential unless you want to. I mean, there's a certain pleasure in being able to write Chinese characters that is not utilitarian. I sometimes wish I'd been forced to learn Chinese as a kid. Of course, there were no Chinese classes in South Africa <laughs> when I was a All kid. Right. But anyway. So, John, how's Shanghai been over the last couple of years? At least this year has been a pretty tough time to be in the city. It's a very strange time. A lot of my foreign friends here in Shanghai have left. It's definitely a time to leave for people who are kind of thinking about it already. Because of my kind of age group, 
a lot of us have kids, and a lot of people, once their kids get older, they want to leave China anyway. So yeah, a lot of people are leaving. Meanwhile, the locals are, I think they're doing what Chinese people often do, which is um, they endure. They make the best of a kind of an unpleasant situation, and they complain a little bit, but not that much, and, and life goes on, you know? Yeah. I mean, you're somebody who doesn't complain. I don't think I've ever heard you say <laughs> anything mean about anybody. How do you maintain such a sunny disposition? <laughs> sunny disposition? I have said a few mean things about people on my blog, which I kind of regret. I don't remember them. They must have been said in such a nice way that the person probably didn't realize they were being insulted. Maybe. But I like to stick to the positive stuff. So last question then, John. Are you in Shanghai for good or do you think you might ever go back to the U.S. one day? That is a good question. It does seem like a good time to go back to the U.S. because of COVID. But for where we are now, you know, my wife and I, my kids, we'd like to stay a bit longer. It's also something that's good for all set learning and Mandarin Companion. And I got to say, I'm still enjoying life in China. I feel like I have friends that maybe something happened in China and they just kind of, it was just the last straw and they were just ready to be done and return to their country. The U.S. is such a different country than it was 22 years ago when I left. That's very true. You know, people always talk about how fast and how much China's changed over the last two decades. But the United States is a completely different place, too. Yeah. So when I think about going back to the U.S., it's kind of scary, to be honest, at least weird and unknown to me, unfamiliar. Absolutely. Well, on that note, John, what a pleasure talking to you. Congratulations on 100 episodes of You Can Learn Chinese. Thank you. Thank you for being an inspiration to all of us who struggle and enjoy learning this amazing language. Well, I should say the same to you. I've always enjoyed talking to you from that first time in Beijing, and I'm glad we had this chat. Absolutely. And there you have it. You have been listening to the You Can Learn Chinese podcast. Help us spread the word by sharing this with your friends, classmates, teachers, cousins, magician, pirate, lumberjack, blah, 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 blah. convict, dancer, analyst, climber, runner, and that one guy named Montgomery. Who is that? You can subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And please write us a review so we know how we're doing. Do it. Do it. Please do it. You can find us on Facebook and at mannercompanion.com or tag us on social media, hashtag mannercompanion. Are the kids still using those hashtags? Apologies to John Cena. We just ran out of time. Oh, John Cena. But Jared, people are talking. What is the deal with the whole John Cena thing? Dude, dude, it's a, it's like, okay, it's a terrible reference to this long-running joke between Jimmy Kimmel and Matt. Dude. Anyway, look it up sometime. The You Can Learn Chinese podcast is produced by myself, Jared Turner. Wait, I, I do something too. I, I, I'm involved here. Yeah, sometimes. And our editor is Kaiser Guo, and interview editor is Dominic Edgley. Love those guys. I'd like to thank our special guest, Jared Turner. That's me. And John Pasden. You're welcome. Actually, thanks to our special interviewers, Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcourt. Love those guys, too. And, of course, thanks to my co-host, the man, the myth, the legend, John Pazdian. Oh, shit. Sure.